This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Brittany Drexel? Brittany Drexel was born in Rochester, New York on October 7, 1991. Not long after she was born, her mother, Dawn, married a man named Chad Drexel, who adopted Brittany. The family lived in a suburb of Rochester. Brittany had been born with a condition in her right eye called persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous. She could not see out of that eye and had several surgeries. Brittany wore contact lenses in order to mask the tendency of her right eye to wander. Brittany struggled with feelings of depression, but she had high hopes for the future. She was in school to study cosmetology and wanted to be a model. In 2008, Dawn and Chad separated, and Brittany stayed with Dawn. The separation may have exacerbated Brittany's feelings of depression. She started sleeping in late and missing school. She was also having trouble with her on-again, off-again boyfriend. Brittany overdosed two times on pain medication. After recovering physically, she was treated by a mental health counselor. In April 2009, Brittany, who was 17 years old this time, requested permission from her mother to spend spring break in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. She intended to go with her boyfriend and some of her girlfriends. Dawn would not grant her permission because she had several problems with the idea. For example, Dawn had a premonition that something bad would happen to Brittany. Dawn did not know Brittany's friends. And the group of teenagers planned to take the trip without any adults present. Brittany was unhappy with her mother's refusal to grant permission. The two argued about the topic for several days. On April 22, Brittany asked her mother for permission to go to a friend's house for a day or two. Brittany claimed that she needed to calm down from all this arguing. Her mother agreed to let her go to the friend's house, but that same day, Brittany and three of her friends departed for South Carolina. After arriving, they checked into the Bar Harbor Hotel in Myrtle Beach. Brittany's boyfriend did not accompany her on the trip because he had to work. Brittany called her mother on April 25 and told her that she was at the beach. Dawn did not think anything of it, because she figured that Brittany was referring to Charlotte Beach in the state of New York. That evening at around 8 p.m., Brittany left the Bar Harbor Hotel on her way to the Blue Water Resort, which is about 1.4 miles away. She wanted to visit a 20-year-old friend of hers named Peter Brozowitz, who also lived in Rochester, New York, and was visiting Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. After arriving at the Blue Water Resort, one of Brittany's friends, back at the Bay Harbor Hotel, contacted her and requested that Brittany return a pair of shorts that she had borrowed. Brittany was captured on video departing the Blue Water Resort at 8.48 p.m. She started texting back and forth with her boyfriend, who again was in Rochester. Her last text message was transmitted at 8.58 p.m. At about 9.15 p.m., her boyfriend grew concerned that Brittany was not answering his text messages. He called her friends at the hotel in an effort to determine what happened to her. He then called Brittany's mother, who in turn called the police. Officers in Myrtle Beach started searching for Brittany. 
They found the video of her leaving the Blue Water Resort. They collected data from her cell phone provider. By tracking pings on towers, the police were able to determine that her phone had left the area and traveled south several miles to Georgetown County, South Carolina. During the early morning hours of April 26, the phone stopped pinging. The last person to see Brittany was Peter Brozowitz. He denied being involved in her disappearance. Brittany's mother moved to Myrtle Beach to better monitor the progress of the investigation. In 2016, the FBI said that they believed Brittany was murdered not long after she disappeared. Someone had taken her from Myrtle Beach to Georgetown County. In August 2016, the police started looking at a man named Timothy Taylor after an inmate serving 25 years in prison for manslaughter implicated him in Brittany's disappearance and murder. Timothy had been convicted in connection with an unrelated crime. He was the getaway driver for a robbery in 2011. He was sentenced to probation for that crime. After he became a suspect in Brittany's case, he was indicted by the federal government for the same crime. The Brittany Drexel case was one of the reasons that prosecutors decided to charge Timothy Taylor at the federal level. This is not considered double jeopardy, although it really should be. Timothy Taylor was given a so-called polygraph. The authorities said that he failed, but according to Timothy, they told him that he passed. In reality, somebody can't fail or pass a polygraph. It is a pseudoscientific instrument that has no value except to scare people who are being interviewed by the police. There is no physiological pattern to deception. No machine can detect a pattern that does not exist. Over time, the investigation went in a completely different direction and resulted in Timothy Taylor no longer being a suspect. Instead, the police shifted their attention to a 62-year-old man named Raymond Moody. In May of 2022, Raymond was charged with obstruction of justice. He allegedly confessed to Brittany's murder and told the police where her remains were located. A week later, the police recovered the remains of Brittany Drexel in the woods near a private road in Harmony Township, South Carolina. Raymond was charged with murder, kidnapping, and first-degree criminal sexual misconduct. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing 
that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Here's what the police think happened. On the evening of April 25, after Brittany left the Blue Water Resort, she voluntarily entered Raymond's vehicle. He drove her about 35 miles south to Georgetown County, South Carolina. She was assaulted and strangled to death on a boat ramp near Santee River. The next day, Raymond buried her body in a wooded area. Now moving to my analysis. Here are my thoughts on a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, Raymond Moody had a disturbing past. He spent 21 years in prison for a 1983 kidnapping. He was a suspect in many other similar cases, but was never charged. He was pulled over for speeding on April 26, 2009, the day after Brittany went missing. He was in Surfside Beach, about eight miles south of Myrtle Beach. In 2011, the police searched a motel room that he rented around the time of Brittany's disappearance, but they didn't find anything connected to the case. Raymond looks pretty guilty given that, according to the police, he confessed to the murder and led them to the body. Item number two. After Brittany's disappearance, some people thought that Peter Brozowitz could have been involved. Again, he was the last person to see Brittany. Apparently, his parents ordered him to leave the hotel early on April 26, which was just a few hours after Brittany disappeared. This departure looked suspicious. Peter appeared on television with Phil McGraw. He was with his attorney and answered various questions. Peter came across as insensitive and arrogant. At one point, when he was trying to explain why he didn't give Brittany a ride back to her hotel, he said something to the effect of, he wasn't there to babysit. Now that Raymond Moody has allegedly confessed, it is clear that Peter was not involved. I think this exemplifies how unpleasant and undesirable reactions or characteristics can make a person look guilty even when they are not guilty. One of the concerns with Peter was that he didn't seem to care that Brittany was missing, like it wasn't his problem. Her parents, Dawn and Chad, were upset with Peter for not contacting them and offering to help find Brittany. Peter was 20 years old when Brittany went missing. Many people his age are self-centered. They can't be expected to react as someone older would react. In addition, if people thought he was guilty of something, then inserting himself into the search for Brittany would not have been helpful to him. There was no winning for Peter in this situation. If he became involved, then people would accuse him of trying to collect information to see how close the police were to finding out what happened in the case, like he was over-interested in the investigation. Item number three, Timothy Taylor was falsely accused in this case. A prison informant said that he saw Timothy with Brittany on four separate occasions. The police claim that a few of those encounters were corroborated by other witnesses. The informant even had a story that Brittany's body was dumped in an alligator pit after she was murdered, which of course was not true. She was found buried in the woods. As it turns out, Timothy was not involved. Even before Raymond was arrested, Timothy was able to discredit the informant's story. Timothy was in school on the days when the informant said he was with Brittany. Even though there was no credible evidence Timothy was involved, prosecutors pulled a double jeopardy stunt. 
by using federal charges to press Timothy for information. This presented a real problem for Timothy because he didn't have any information. He was innocent. It seems clear that this is an example of law enforcement being reckless and willing to pursue someone who is not guilty. This was a terrible injustice for Timothy. This case exemplifies the dangers of believing prison informants. They are notoriously unreliable. In my opinion, information from these informants should always be viewed with a very high level of skepticism. They have a strong motive to present something useful to the police so they can get out of prison. I find it interesting that these prison informants claim to remember information in stages. When they are first arrested, they don't know anything. When they're in prison for a few years, they start to remember that they saw someone else committing a serious crime. And then over the next several years, they keep remembering new helpful details, which often coincidentally matches what police officers are telling them. Many appear to suffer from prison-inspired memory recovery disorder. Something else I find interesting about the false accusation of Timothy, when he was asked in an interview if he had anything to say to Brittany's family, he said that he sincerely apologized for their loss and he hoped that whoever was responsible would be brought to justice. But he didn't have any information because he was not involved. It appears as though Timothy had compassion for the people who were falsely accusing him. Yet, that did not stop the accusations. This supports the theory that there is no right or wrong way to respond for someone who is suspected of a crime. Anything they say can and will be used against them. Item number four, could this crime have been prevented? This case exemplifies how sometimes many different factors come together to facilitate these types of terrible crimes. Brittany Drexel was not having a fun trip in South Carolina. Evidently, there was some tension between her and her traveling companions. She was probably frustrated about having to leave the hotel and walk the 1.4 miles back to her hotel. Nobody at the hotel where she was offered her a ride, which of course would have prevented the crime. When Brittany saw a man in a car offer her a ride, perhaps she thought this was the solution to her concern. Brittany appeared to be somewhat rebellious and impulsive. She did not appreciate the risk that she was taking. Unfortunately, a killer was waiting to exploit just this type of mentality. From the perspective of the killer, this was the perfect situation. He was able to convince a teenager to climb into his vehicle, and no one witnessed it. I think this is a case where Brittany Drexel ran into the wrong person under the wrong circumstances. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, 
you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.